Hey everyone, welcome to another week of Come Follow Me, A Disciple's Journey. This week's Come Follow Me study is Alma chapters 36 through 38. This is the beginning of Alma's instruction to his three sons. We're going to get his instruction to to two of his sons uh, this week. Uh, 36 and 37 are to his son Helaman, and chapter 38 is to his son Shiblon. Next week's study is his instruction to his son Coriantin, who was a little wayward. So, uh, as as really usual, you'll notice that this week's really and next week's really goes together in that it's Alma teaching his sons in both cases. And also, uh, with that in mind, it's interesting to kind of compare and contrast the different uh, instruction that he gives to his different sons and uh, why he may be giving them different instruction. So, I know I've said this before, but I've, this this week's preparation felt a little different, and so uh, maybe this week's episode will unfold a little differently. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, to, to begin, starting with the Come Follow Me manual, um, I like that it points out what's going on at this time. So, if you remember... Uh, Alma and Amulek and his sons and some other missionaries had have just been in Antionum with where the Zoramites Zoramites uh, were and are. They had been trying to reclaim them, reclaim them through preaching of the gospel, getting them to repent and turn to Christ. They were successful in that many people did uh, repent and were converted to the faith, but they were unsuccessful in that the majority did not. And what that meant was that they defected over to the Lamanites, and that is going to cause war. So, reading chronologically, you go from Alma 35 right into Alma 43. But Mormon here slips in right in that time frame, uh, Alma's instruction to his three sons. And that's what we get Alma 36 through 42. But the war really starts to happen, and there's this, you know, we we read back in uh, in chapter thirty five and really back in uh, thir- chapter thirty one as well that uh, there was this worry that the Zoramites would join the Lamanites. So there was kind of this ongoing I don't know, tension, I guess, in the air, a political tension, and so uh, there that's kind of the climate that Alma was living in. And now now the Zoramites have defected. War is imminent. War is, is going to be happening, and that's what leads to him gathering his sons and, and teaching them. And so that's I love this. It says uh, at the beginning of "Come Follow Me" this week. When Alma saw the wickedness around him, he felt deep sorrow, tribulation, and anguish anguish of soul. Wickedness among his this people, he said, of the Zoramites, doth pain my soul. He felt something similar after returning home from his mission to the Zoramites. He observed that quote the hearts of the people began to wax hard, and they began to be offended because of the strictness of the word, and this made his heart exceedingly sorrowful. What did Alma do about what he saw and felt? I love this question. And I mean the the, the chapter I mean the, the paragraph essentially answers it, but think about that, okay? What is he seeing? He he through multiple times through the Alma chapters we've seen him weighed down with sorrow for the wickedness of people. He gets back to Zarahemla and he's seeing that there's this contention in the land with the Lamanites and that, that this war is going to be happening. But also that he noticed uh, that the their hearts were uh, began to wax hard. 
And so he's worried about that. So what does he do? Well, as the manual points out, he didn't simply become discouraged or cynical about the state of the world. Instead, he caused that his sons should be gathered together and taught them the things pertaining unto righteousness. He taught them that, quote, there is no other way or means whereby men can be saved only in and through Christ. Behold, he is the word of truth and righteousness. So I love this because it's something that we can apply into our day. And I think this is another thing that shouts to me that the Book of Mormon was compiled for our day. Why would Mormon, why does Mormon include these chapters in the middle of a war, in chapters in the middle of a wartime, in the middle of this contentious time? Mormon inserts this. And to me, he's shouting, at least again, specifically to me, he's shouting, don't simply become discouraged or cynical about the state of the world. Instead, like Alma, I could I can gather my sons and my daughters and my family together and teach them the things pertaining unto righteousness. Are we it's easy to become cynical. It's easy to to just uh post something on social media and say the world's terrible, everything's terrible. This is awful, I hate it, yada yada. But where are the solutions? What's the solution to the problems? And I think what I'm what I get from this week's study and from Come Follow Me is that we can gather in our circle of influence. And whether that circle of influence is five or fifty or more than that, the people that we have an influence over, we can gather them in and we can teach them things pertaining unto righteousness. Teach them about Jesus Christ. Teach them about the gospel. The gospel and the atonement of Jesus Christ, that's the solution to all the pains and the ills of the world. That's it. There's no... that. You don't have to have a doctoral, some sort of doctorate degree. You don't have to be a professor or an economist or a politician. No, what you need to do is have the gospel in your life and in, and in the lives, lives of those around you. And you can share that with your circle of influence. And that's what Alma saw. And to me, that's what I, I, I see Alma doing is gathering together those whom he cares about and loves about, or loves about, loves, loves about. What is that? It's not even a thing. People he cares about and loves and sharing the gospel with them, sharing his testimony. And that's something else that you'll, I think, see in chapters 36 all the way through 42 when we get into next week and his his direction to his son Corianton is how many times Alma testifies of truth and, and true doctrine to his sons. So uh, one thing to begin as we jump into the scriptures here is notice, like I kind of mentioned at this outset, the different things, the different way that Alma teaches his different sons. He teaches them all truth. He, te- he teaches them all about Jesus Christ. Um, but he does it in a different way. And especially when you get into Corianton next week and Corianton being wayward and he has to dig a little deeper, answer a few more questions for him. And it, to me, shows uh, a pattern in the way that the Lord teaches. And that is line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. We are given the light that we can handle, right? And so uh, I think back to when I was a high school baseball coach and um, you know, I spent a lot of my time with the younger high school kids, freshmen, you know, about 15 years old, still really getting a grasp on the game of baseball. And, you know, as a, in baseball, there's a pitcher and the pitcher will throw different pitches. Um, 
you can throw a fastball that is it is exactly what it sounds like it's fast uh and it's typically just fast and the ball just goes straight and then there's other pitchers like a curveball which is exactly what it sounds like you throw it and the ball will actually curve and there's a pitch called the changeup that you throw it and it's supposed to look like it's going to be coming fast like a fastball but then it's actually just slower and it might sink and drop drop down a little bit or something like that there's a there's a whole plethora of other pitches but you know those are kind of the main three and working with these high school baseball players we would i wouldn't bother and us as a coaching staff would not bother working on a kid's curveball a pitcher's curveball if he couldn't throw a fastball consistently for a strike if he couldn't throw a good fastball consistently where he was trying to throw it then that's it's pointless to teach him another pitch he needs to master the basic which is a fastball he needs to master that and once he gets control of that we would then build on that and then once he's got two pitches and that are okay let's add a third pitch but it's this a little bit here a little bit there I'm not going to go to a kid who's struggling or doesn't even has never really pitched at all and say here are all three of these pitches you need to learn them no and so there's there's a pattern in the way that we teach and that we should teach and there's a pattern in the way that the Lord teaches in the Alma. Uh, I think that kind of explains what we what we will see here in chapters 36 through 38. And again, like I said, 36 really through 42 in the differences uh, that Alma is teaching his sons. Another thing that's important to remember as you study this week is remember who Alma is. It can be easy as you're reading this to think it, uh, to just like kind of get lost in the moment, kind of, and to get lost in him talking and the verses and the Alma's a pretty poetic type writer. I mean, we'll talk about that in chapter 36. Um, it, uh, the entire chapter 36 is a Hebrew po- poem, basically, style of poem. Um, but he also, you know, the way that he words things is is, is pretty quite poetic, actually. And so it can be easy to get lost in, in his writing style and uh, the doctrine that he's teaching and forget that it's Alma the Younger talking. Who is he? Where did he come from? What's his story? It can even be, even after reading, even reading chapter 36, when he's telling you that story, it can be like kind of hard to, to, to remember that. And what I'm, here's what I mean. By that, I mean, it can be difficult to remember that Alma was once a wayward son whose father taught him, right? Just like he's teaching Helaman, although Helaman's not wayward, and Shiblon, although Shiblon's not wayward, and just like he's going to teach Corianton next week, and Corianton is wayward. What's easy to forget is that Alma was once a son who disregarded what his dad said. But in his own story, and we'll talk about this in chapter 36, what spurred his conversion, what spurred him coming to the light was him remembering what his father taught. And so what you have here is a a man who experienced this, who experienced the power of his parents' testimony and the power of his parents' prayers sharing that with the next generation. Uh, So on that note, I have a couple of uh, quotes that I want to read. The first is from President Eyring, then Elder Eyring from 1989. He said, The years pass, we teach the doctrine the best we can, and yet some still do not respond. There is sorrow in that, but there is hope in the scriptural record of families. Think of Alma the Younger and Enos. In their moments of crisis, they remembered the words of their fathers, words of the doctrine, doctrine of Christ. It saved them. Your teaching of that sacred doctrine will be remembered. 
another quote this is from Elder Anderson, 2010. Although there may be times when a child does not listen with a believing heart, your testimony of Jesus will remain in his or her mind and soul. Do you remember the story of Alma, who had chosen the wrong path? Returning, he said, I remembered my father speaking concerning the coming of Jesus Christ to atone for the sins of the world. As my mind caught hold upon this thought, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me. If a child is not listening, don't despair. Time and truth are on your side. At the right moment, your words will return as if from heaven itself. Your testimony will never leave your children. And that's all. That's a how how great of a comfort is that in the story that we can get. And, and as President Eyring said, from not only Alma's story but Enos's story and, and and others as well, that the testimony that we share with our children, even if they go wayward and turn uh, turn aside from the truth, uh, our testimonies will not leave them. I'm also I'm also comforted by the thought that um, you know heaven won't be heaven without my kids and without my family. So even if they did, if they uh, go down another path, uh, I can put my faith in Jesus Christ and my heavenly Father and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and in and in their love and mercy, to know that they will have a plan to make things whole. Um, again, that, I mean, that doesn't, not that that takes away people's agency, but there's comfort in that thought. And there's comfort in these, this thought shared by Elder Anderson and Elder Eyring, uh, that our children will remember. And Alma, the younger is a testament, a testament of that. And that's, that's where I wanted to start there. And why I wanted to start was, uh, because even as you're reading chapter 36, it can be easy to forget that what he's doing right now in sharing his experience and his conversion with his sons isn't just him doing that. It's him doing what his dad did for him and what saved, what ended up saving him. Even after however long of being down, going down the wrong path, what saved him, or at least was the catalyst, I should say, because Jesus is what saved him and we'll see that. But what was the catalyst to start that process was his father's testimony. And now he, as a father, is giving that gift to Helaman and to Shiblon and to Corianton. And as parents, that's the greatest gift that we can give our children, is the gift of our testimony. Now, they need to find their own testimony. But until they do, they can light their hands by the light and, the, and by the warmth of the fire of our testimony. That's it. And and when they and if they don't get their own testimony, then in their darkest times, our testimony can be what it can be the light that brings them back. All right, let's let's go into chapter thirty six here. Start going through it a little bit. Um, chapter thirty six is, as I mentioned, a Hebrew poetic form called the chiasmus. I've mentioned this in the past. It's pretty prevalent in the Book of Mormon. Uh, there's some, you know strong thought that the entire book of first Nephi is a chiasmus. Uh, as recently as chapter 34, uh, we talked about a chiasmus last week. It's a, it was only like a six or so verse chiasmus in that uh, chapter, but Amulek shares it. The point, I said, that's funny. The point you'll, you'll see why I, that use of words is kind of funny to me, but the point of a chiasmus is to point at a, at something, 
to, to highlight it, to say this is the most important feature. And the form actually creates a point. The first and the last uh, sections or points, uh, uh, I'm going to stop using that word because it's going to confuse me and you. The first uh, and last sections are the mirror each other and the second and the second to last and the third and the third to last and so on and so on until you get to a a middle point that's that's supposed to be uh, the entire rest of the chiasmus is uh, guiding you to there to say this is the most important this is what I'm trying to highlight and feature so in reading Alma chapter 36 and you're thinking all right Here's Alma. He's sharing his conversion story with his son. What's the most most important thing? What's the most important thing to share with him? Well, here's a guy who saw an angel and was rocked, and that was like life-changing. That altered his life, right? You'd think, well, it's probably that experience. And it kind of is. But it has nothing to do with the angel. It has nothing to do with falling down and being uh, speechless and motionless for a period of time. What the point is, where the highlight is, is verses 17 and 18, and it says, I remembered one Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou Son of God. The central feature, just like the central feature and focus of the, the entire Book of Mormon, is Jesus Christ. That's what Alma's pointing his son Helaman to right here. And he does so in share by sharing his experience and getting, seeing the angel and being shaken. And but what's the center is the center is Jesus Christ, not an angel, not the three days, Jesus. So that's something really uh, critical to keep in mind as you study that, uh, that chapter this week. Uh, some of the verses that I wanted to point out and highlight are uh, verse 12. I love the word Harrow. I've mentioned this in previous uh, episodes. This word is like almost exclusively used to my knowledge in the book of Alma by, by Alma or about Alma. And when I say almost exclusively, it's mentioned also, I I believe in Mosiah and, uh, but it's about Alma the younger. So, and I love the imagery of a harrow. It's a farming tool that is similar to like a plow. That's job is to loosen up the dirt and, and, uh, basically be pulled through hard, uh, solid type dirt to loosen it up, to make, make it, uh, prepared for, uh, planting it. It's a preparatory process. And Alma hears, Alma says, but I was racked with eternal torment for my soul was harrowed up to the greatest degree and racked with all my sins. So the memory of his sins, what did it do? Well, it caused him to be harrowed. It prepared him. It, uh, like Amulek in Amulek. So it's funny that I mentioned Amulek in chapter 34, the, his chiasmus that the point of his chiasmus was to show that all men are fallen and that all men need Christ. Well, here's Alma experience telling his experience and what it was, was him realizing it was driving him to, to realize that he needed Christ. So what's well, also interesting about this is the way that he ends his, this is next week's chapter, but it's the way he ends his message to his son, Corianton. He says, 
Now, my son, I desire that you should let these things trouble you no more, and only let your sins trouble you with that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. And so he's trying in chapters 40, 30, excuse me, 39 through 42, he's talking to Corianton. He's trying to harrow and be a part of that harrowing process for his son Corianton to prepare him to repent. And he's saying, don't let these sins trouble you anymore other than to make them drive you to repentance. And he can say that because that was his experience, right? So uh, another thing that I wanted to point out was he's got this exquisite pain and he's racked with uh with torment, even the pains of a damned soul. And it came to pass that I was thus racked with torment while I was harrowed up by the memory of my many sins. Behold, I remembered to have heard my father prophesy unto the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, a son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. And now as my mind caught hold upon that thought, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me, whom in the gall of bitterness and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. And now behold, now this is what I wanted to focus on here was this point, verse 19. Now behold, when I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. Yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. And oh, what joy and what marvelous light I did behold. How soon was that? How fast was that? Immediately. It happened immediately. Amulek, back in chapter 34, taught, Therefore, if you will repent and harden not your uh, your hearts, immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you. Now, is Alma's process done? Is his conversion over when he thought had that thought and he had this exquisite joy? No, absolutely not. Was he even f- fully forgiven and pardoned? No, there was still more repentance to do and more more work to do in repairing the damage that had been done. But immediately, the great plan of redemption had had taken hold. That's how fast. In, a, in, a, in the blink of an eye, uh, so long as we are humble and sincere and have real intent, the great plan of redemption can have power and effect in our life immediately. The, the atonement, the atoning power of Jesus Christ can, can take effect immediately. And I love that from, from Alma's perspective here, how he went from the light or from the darkness and the pain to the light and the joy immediately, as soon as his mind caught hold upon Jesus Christ. And uh, that's, that's the next thing I want to talk about actually is, is the catching hold upon that thought. Should we not all, especially those of us who have covenanted and who covenant to always remember him, should not that be our thought? Should not we be catching hold upon that thought about upon Jesus Christ? This is from Elder Holland. He said, most people who end up uh, in people in trouble and end up crying, what was I thinking? Well, whatever they were thinking, they weren't thinking of Christ. Yet as members of his church, we pledge every Sunday of our lives to take upon ourselves his name and promise to always remember him. So let us work a little harder remembering him, especially that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was bruised for our iniquities, and with his stripes we are healed. Surely it would guide our actions in a dramatic way if we remembered that every time we transgress, we hurt not only those who uh, those we love, but also hurt him who so dearly loves us. But if we do sin, however serious that sin may be, we can be rescued that uh, that same by that same majestic figure, he who bears the only name given under heaven, whereby any man or woman can be saved. When confronting our transgressions and our souls are harrowed up with true pain, may we all echo the repentant Alma and utter the, his life-changing cry: "O Jesus, Thou Son of God, have mercy on me." Catch hold upon that thought. That's what we should all be catching hold on. Uh, you know, we're teaching our kids uh, a song now. It's now I can't even think of the words, but if Jesus were beside me, would I do the things I do? 
Um, when I say the things I say, it's that song. Uh, for whatever reason, the name of it is escaping me. So I'm doing a great job of teaching them, obviously. Uh, um, but anyway, the point is, it's been, it's got me thinking. And it's, you know, what I say, the things I say, what I post, the things I post on social media, what I do, the things I do. If I was always remembering him, if I, if my mind was catching hold upon that thought, oh, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. If that was my thought, and if I was always remembering him, I think that's something that we could probably all ask ourselves. Um, all right. Um, I just realized I wanted to share something when we were talking about the godly sorrow and harrowing. Uh, it's a quote from President Benson. Um, so just kind of back to that thought. Godly sorrow, this harrowing experience that Alma's explaining, and he, uh, President Benson said, It is not uncommon to find men and women in the world who feel remorse for the things they do wrong. Sometimes this is because their action caused them or loved ones great sorrow and misery. Sometimes their sorrow is caused because they are caught and punished for their actions. Such worldly feelings do not constitute godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a gift of the Spirit. It is deep realization that our actions have offended our Father and our and our God. But now, to combine that with what President or Elder Holland was saying, and always remembering him, and that when we when we don't, we're not only offending other people and other our fellow men, but also Christ. We're hurting. We're hurting him. It is the sharp and keen awareness that our behavior caused the Savior, He who knew no sin, even the greatest of all, to endure agony and suffering. Our sins caused him to bleed at every pore. This very real mental and spiritual anguish is what the scriptures refer to as having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Uh, another point I wanted to make about this chapter is that uh, the Alma's first, at the beginning and the end, he taught, he highlights the Exodus experience of, of the children of Israel. And it's interesting in taking this in context of him talking about his deliverance. And so things that we can learn from the Exodus experience, the Exodus story in the Old Testament and the Lord delivering the children of Israel is the same type of thing. That story is in terms of a a scriptural story that we can learn from. It's about Christ. It's about Jehovah, God of Israel, who who is Jesus Christ, delivering his people from bondage. And that's exactly what he did for Alma, and that's exactly what he can do for us. It's what we can learn is that when we are in bondage of sin of sin and sorrow, that he can and he will deliver us because he is that God. He is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is the great deliverer. That is who he is, and that is what he does, is deliver. Uh, so long as we, like Alma, catch hold upon the thought, Oh, blessed Jesus, have mercy on upon me. So in my study this week, I found a bunch of quotes, and it was funny, a lot of them came from President Benson. So President Benson, in talking about remembering uh, our pains no more in in repentance, he said, Repentance means more than simply a reformation of behavior. Many men and women in the world demonstrate great willpower and self-discipline in becoming, in overcoming bad habits. Uh, on that note, before I get back to the, I'll go back to that quote in just a second. I'm pretty sure it was Elder Renland said that without the atonement, repentance is nothing more than miserable mod- uh, b- miserable behavior modification. And that's what the world does. But that's not what we do when we have the atonement, when we have true repentance and we have the Savior. Uh, back to President Benson. He said, Yet at the same time, they give no thought to the Master, sometimes even openly rejecting him. 
Such changes of behavior, even in a positive direction, do not constitute repentance. Repentance involves not just a change of actions, but a change of heart. That's from a conference address in uh, 1989 called The Mighty Change of Heart. Uh, And continuing that thought, President Benson also spoke. uh, It's uh, from actually the same talk. Uh, but he spoke about what's the evidence that someone has really had a mighty change of heart that they've repented and not just changed, right? Like in a in a worldly sense, what's the the fruit of that? He said, when we have undergone this mighty change, which is brought about only through faith in Jesus Christ and through the operation of the Spirit upon us, it is as though we have become a new person. Thus, the change is likened to a new birth. Thousands of you have experienced this change. You have forsaken lives of sin, sometimes deep and offensive sin, and through applying the blood of Christ in your lives have become clean. You have no more disposition to return to your old ways. You are in reality a new person. This is what is meant by a change of heart. And that's the change that we can see that happened to Alma the Younger. Um, so final thought that I wanted to share uh with you about Alma chapter 36 is this. Uh, it can, we read these stories and we see this immediate good, the immediate goodness of God. Um, and I, I use that phrase because it's a scriptural phrase. And it's also a talk from elder, uh, what was his name? I can't think of it. McKay as 2019, April, 2019. Um, and the immediate goodness and how fast this took effect uh, in Alma's life and in others' lives. And we can see it's like, oh, well, what does that mean? And why I still like feel guilty or I still remember my sins. And so what does that mean for us in terms of are we forgiven? And how can we know if we're using Alma, let's go back to Alma, Amulek's word. How can we know that the great plan of redemption has been brought about unto you, unto us, and that that's taking effect? So this is from... Uh, conference, April 2019, Tad R. Callister, he said, On occasion I have met with good saints who have had trouble forgiving themselves, who have innocently but incorrectly placed limits on the Savior's redemptive powers. Unwittingly, they they have converted an infinite atonement to a finite one that somehow falls short of their particular sin or weakness. But it is an infinite, it is an infinite atonement because it is uh, it encompasses and circumscribes every sin and weakness, as well as every abuse or pain caused by others. Truman G. Madsen made this comforting observation. If there are some of you who have been tricked into the conviction that you have gone too, for, gone too far, that you have had the poison of sin which makes it impossible ever to begin uh, to be what you could have been, then hear me. I bear testimony that you cannot seek sink farther than the light and sweeping intelligence of Jesus Christ can reach. I bear testimony that as long as there is one spark of the will to repent and reach, he is there. He did not just descend to your condition. He descended below it, that he might not, that he might be in all and through all things, the light of truth. One reason it is so essential to understand the Savior's atonement and its infinite implications is that we, is that with increased understanding comes an increased desire to forgive ourselves and others. Even though we may believe in Christ's cleansing powers, the question often arises, how do I know if I have been forgiven of my sins? If we feel the Spirit, then that is our witness that we have been forgiven, or that the cleansing process is taking place. President Henry Bionning taught, if you have felt the influence of the Holy Ghost, you may take it as evidence that the atonement is working in your life. And again, does that mean that maybe more work is necessary? Sure. Just like Alma. But 
you can be rest assured that you are on the right path. Continue on that path. And the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ will cleanse you, will heal you, because it's already starting to. On that same note, President Uchtdorf said, Satan will, when he was President Uchtdorf, now Elder Uchtdorf again, uh, Satan will try to make us believe that our sins are not forgiven but because we can remember them. Satan is a liar. He tries to blur our vision and he leads us away from the path of repentance and forgiveness. God did not promise that we would not remember our sins. Remembering will help us avoid making the same mistakes again. But if we stay true and faithful, the memory of our sins will be softened over time. This will be part of the, of the needed healing and sanctification process. And might I add, that is a part of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Not, it's, just not a, it's not just the cleansing, but it's also the healing that will occur. Um, and as he says, the needed healing and sanctification process. So uh, with that, I kind of want to move on to chapter 37. One final thought I wanted to just share briefly about chapter 36 is uh, if you have some time, do some digging. There are a lot of great quotes from general, author- general authorities about this chapter. Uh, it's an amazing chapter. Uh, it's one of my favorite chapters to study just because, especially when you get close to that central focus, that focal point of the chiasmus, there's, Alma does a beautiful job of just the contrast um, and working up to it, talking about the darkness and then working back away from Jesus and, and using these the, the word light and the, the taste and uh, just a beautiful chapter. Uh, but one thing I wanted to point out is there's a discrepancy in the number of days that he says he was unconscious for and how many days it says in Mosiah 27. Uh, one thing that is important to note is that the words that are used are different. So this is just something that I knit, was cool that I was studying this week learned. Um, in Mosiah 27, it specifically says two days and two nights, but that's that's talking about specifically about how long Alma, the older, his father, and the priests fasted and prayed for, for Alma. It was two days and two nights. But Alma says it was three days and three nights, but he'd been brought to them. Then presumably Alma needs to go and inform the priests, have them start a fast. So by that point in time, it's not going to be as long as Alma was actually unconscious for. So just something cool that there was this, there's this time discrepancy. But if, when you look at the words that it's describing, Alma saying how long he was unconscious for in Mosiah 27 is saying how long they fasted and prayed for before he uh, came to. So anyway, just something cool to note and some of the, those little tidbits I'd like to to share as I come across them. All right, let's uh, let's start with chapter 37. So chapter 37, he's can still talking to his son, Helaman. Uh, he's now born basically his testimony, his conversion story, and now he's going to be giving Helaman a little more instruction. He's going to be, he's telling Helaman, I'm going to give you the record. You're going to be in charge of the record, and he's going to instruct him uh, why the record is important, what he needs to do to keep it. Uh... Elder Bednar, in talking about the importance of scriptures, said the scriptures contain the words of Christ and are a reservoir of living water to which we have ready access and from which we can drink deeply and long. You and I must look to and come unto Christ, who is the foundation of living waters. Uh, By studying, reading, searching, and feasting upon the words of Christ as contained in the Holy Scriptures, by so doing, we can receive both spiritual direction and protection during our mortal journey. So that's the importance of the scriptures, and essentially, that is what Alma is going going to be teaching his son. Uh, he teaches him about these scriptures, and so the famous scripture, small and simple things. Well, what's that in reference to? It's in reference to the record, the scriptures, the record that they were keeping. That's the small and simple thing that he's referencing, and that hey, just by keeping a record, just by 
keeping it so that we can enlarge the memory of our people, so that people can remember what great things have been done for us. Great things come to pass. So, uh, let's start with some quotes from some general authorities about small and simple things. Uh, first, Elder Ballard, uh, well, then Elder Ballard, now President Ballard. See, this gets confusing. I'll, I'm going to stick with Elder Ballard. All right. Is our journey sometimes impeded when we forget the importance of small things? We realize that small events and choices determine the direction of our lives, just as the small helms determine the direction of great ships. Uh, James chapter 3, by the way, and Dr. Covenant section 123. We need to have family and personal prayers, study the scriptures, particularly the Book of Mormon, hold family home evenings, follow the admonition of the Savior to love one another, and be thoughtful, kind, and gentle within the family. Through these and the other similar and small and simple things, we have the promise that our lives will be filled with peace and joy. Some of the things that think about some of the things he listed as small and simple things. Family and personal prayer. Uh, family and personal study, particularly of the Book of Mormon, holding family home evenings. So, it's been my experience as I've, as as a relative of people who have, who have fallen away from the church and as uh, ecclesiastical leader of people who have fallen away from the church, uh, one of the common themes is this. They hadn't. They haven't. They hadn't been doing the small and simple things for quite uh, quite some time before the final decision to say, "Hey, I'm like leaving the church." Comes there. There was not daily scripture study. There was not daily prayer. There was not a couple, you know, praying with their spouse. There was not praying with their family. Uh, oftentimes, the showy things, the things that people can see outwardly. So even like saying family prayer or, uh, or praying uh, over meals and things like that, that other people can see, those are often the last things to go. The first things to go are these other, the, the hidden things, the things that you do in private, studying your scriptures, praying morning and night, praying with your spouse. Those are often the first things to go. But by those things and by doing those things, every day, every day, every day, we stay close to the Lord. So we talk about small and simple things here at the beginning, Alma does. And then at the end, Alma of this the end of this near the end of this chapter, Alma admonishes his son Helaman to do small and simple things. He says, Cry unto God for our all thy support. He's teaching him to pray. Pray for his support. Uh whithersoever thou goest, let it be unto the Lord. Yea, all let all thy thoughts be directed unto the Lord. He says, Counsel with the Lord in all thy doings. And he will direct thee for thy good. When thou liest down at night, lie down unto the Lord, that he may watch over you in your sleep. And when thou risest in the morning, let thy heart be full of thanks unto God. Okay, so he's saying, right? What is he saying here? He said he's teaching him to pray. Pray morning and night. Pray always. Look to the Lord in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. That's essentially what Alma's teaching his son. Okay, but he's a, it's a small and simple thing. As as we were just we read from uh, Elder Ballard. But then how does how does Alma close this? He says. And if you do these things, you shall be lifted up at the last day. Well, does praying every day save you? Does that work? Save you? Absolutely not. No. We cannot pray our way into heaven. But what he's teaching him, and he started by teaching him small and simple things, and then he comes back around to these small and simple things, is he's teaching them that by small and simple things, great things like eternal salvation are brought to pass. By praying every day, every day, every day, 
with yourself, with your spouse, with your family, by studying the scriptures, by doing those small things every day, what we're doing is we're staying on the covenant path. It's the path that we're on because that pathway grants us access to the atoning, the atoning power of Jesus Christ. And that is what saves us. That is what will lift us up at the last day. But it's the small and simple things that keep us close to the Lord. That's what Alma's teaching his son Helaman here. Uh, another quote from a general authority, because there's so many about this specific verse as well. Uh, this one from Elder Ballard again, actually. We observe vast sweeping world events. However, we must remember that the purpose, purposes of the Lord in our personal lives generally are fulfilled through the small and simple things and not the momentous and spectacular. We need to have family and personal prayers, study the scriptures, particularly the Book of Mormon, hold family home evenings. And now I just realized for the first time that this is the same quote, but it was just it had more of it at the beginning. So I'm not going to read any more of it. Guys, I studied this. I pulled these quotes from different places. And it's the same quote. And I just now realized that. But anyway, emphasized. Emphasis. There you go. Uh, do those small and simple things. Uh, but I actually uh, do have another quote. This one from President Oaks. So he said, I was reminded of the power of small and simple things over time by something I saw on a morning walk. Uh, the thick and strong concrete sidewalk he walked, was walking by was cracking. Is this the result of some large and powerful thrust? No, this cracking is caused by the slow, small growth of one of those roots reaching out from the adjoining trees. Uh, the thrusting power that cracked these heavy concrete sidewalks was too small to measure on a daily or even monthly basis, but its effect over time was incredibly powerful. So it is the powerful effect over time of the small and simple things we are taught in the scriptures by, and by living prophets. Consider the scripture study we've been taught to incorporate into our daily lives, or consider the personal prayers and the kneeling family prayers and the regular practices for faithful Latter-day Saints. Consider the attendance at seminary for youth or institute classes for young adults. Though each of these practices may be small and simple, over time they lead to large and miraculous miracles. Okay, so small and simple things. This These quotes got me thinking, What, especially at the beginning of the Elder uh, Ballard quote, that you know huge momentous things in our life happen in world events, and it's like, what can we do to even impact this or make a difference? And so then it got me thinking back to what did Alma do? He gathered his sons. He gathered his circle of influence. And this reminded me of the talk from last general conference uh, from Elder L. Whitney Clayton called The Finest Homes, in which he talked about making our homes a finest home and how we do that. And in the talk, he essentially lays out doing small and simple things within our home. Come follow me. Studying the scriptures, family prayer, family home evening, personal prayer, personal study. So small and simple things that make our home the finest homes, that protect them from all the, 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 the calamity and all, from all the craziness of the world. And it's how we make a difference. It's how we light the fire within us. It's how we light the fire within our children so that when they go out, not only are they inoculated from the fiery darts of the adversary, but they also can be a light to invite others to follow and to say, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that girl. And it's the small and simple things that we do in our home. And again, highlight, when Alma's talking about small and simple things at the beginning, he's talking about the scriptures. And then later on, he's ta talking about the Liahona, and he talks about these small and simple things. And he ties, again, Alma's beautiful 
he's a beautiful writer and his poetic and the way he's able to tie things together. Small and simple at the beginning is the scriptures. Later, he's teaching his son about prayer and it's a small and simple thing. And then late, and then he goes back to that thought of small and simple and he's back and he talks about the Leon and we'll, we'll pull that in here in just, in just a bit. Um, but we're going to move on to some other thoughts from Alma chapter 37. And one of those is the purpose of scriptures, sticking with scriptures, verse eight, enlarging our memories. He says, now it has hitherto been wisdom in God that these things should be preserved for behold, they have been, they have enlarged the memory of this people. A common theme in the book of Mormon is to remember. Go to Alma 36. It starts with him talking about that he remembers the captivity of his fathers. Now he's talking to Helaman now about the scriptures and how it's enlarged their memory. Go to the title page of the Book of Mormon and the purposes. The purpose of the Book of Mormon is to bring. Uh, uh, that's uh, instead of me butchering it uh, right now. I'm gonna just flip there. Wasn't planning on it because I was like, I got this, but then I started trying to do it and I was like, I don't got this. So we're gonna flip there and read it because that will be way better. So, to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers. So, it's to remind and to enlarge the memory. This is the purpose of the Book of Mormon, one of them. To remind them or bring to their memory the great things the Lord has done for their father. That's one of the great purposes of the Book of Mormon is the great purpose of the book of, of the scriptures that they were retaining. That's why they were keeping a record of their genealogy and it was passed down and passed down. So that they could look back and say, oh yeah, my fathers, they were delivered by the God of Israel and the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac. And Isaac and Jacob, I did that in the wrong order, but same, same seas. So if they were delivered, I too can be delivered. They made covenants, I've made covenants, so the power of God, the great deliverer, will deliver me. And that's what we can look to for our hope. Hope and faith are inextricably bound together. Hope is an abiding trust that the Lord will fulfill his promises to us. And our hope can be built by looking to the past and having our memories enlarged. Those records, they clearly had some of these written down that they took with them everywhere. Remember back in in Ammonihah, they threw the women and children in the fire with the records. They were throwing scriptures. Ammon and his brethren clearly had some sort of record that they took with them because Alma in verse 9 talks about how their success in the Lamanite land was largely due to them having a record. So they could teach them and then they could point to the scriptural record and say, I'm not just making this up. This is the history of the, what happened. This is the history of how, of why you need. This is the history of Christ. This is the or, and the prophecies of Christ. This is the history of our people and coming across the seas and being delivered, and uh, being having our memories enlarged. Elder Christofferson said, "The Scriptures enlarge our memory by helping us always to remember the Lord." and our relationship to him and the Father. The scriptures also enlarge our memory by helping us not to forget what we and earlier generations have learned. Those who either don't have or ignore the record, the rec- recorded word of God eventually cease to believe in him and forget the purposes, the purpose of their existence. You will remember how important it was for Lehi's people to take the brass plates with them when they left Jerusalem. These scriptures were key to their knowledge of God and the coming uh, redemption of Christ. So, there you go. Small and simple things, scriptures, enlarging our memory, building our hope, which in turn builds our faith. Hope and faith allow us to have charity, which without it, we're nothing. And with it, we become like Christ, which is the whole point. 
Uh, Alma then moves on. He starts to teach his son about the record and saying, continues to teach him, I should say, and starts to teach him about uh, keeping them sacred and safe and that this is the work of God and that so long as he is righteous, he will be blessed, but he doesn't, it doesn't matter because the work of the Lord will not be stopped. It reminds me of section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord says the same type of thing, that his work can't be stopped. Um, and that he's going to give, a, he, in section 121, he's talking about revelation and he says, I'm going to pour out revelation and knowledge and the saints of the, on the heads of the Latter-day Saints. But, and no one can stop that. Even, and then he compares it to uh, a man sticking his arm in the mighty Missouri River and trying to have his arm in the water turn the course of the of the water. No, you can't stop it. The course, the 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 power of the Lord, the power of the river, is just going to wash that wash right through that arm, and it's not going to divert the river at all. And so too, the purposes of the Lord cannot be thwarted. Alma teaches his son that. He then tells him, um, "No earth, uh, no power of earth or hell can take them from you." For God is powerful to fulfilling all of his words, for he will fulfill all his promises, which he shall make unto you. For he has fulfilled his promises, which he has made unto our fathers. Again, enlarging the memory. Look back to what he's done for our fathers. Look, the scriptures are important. Our personal journals are important so that we can look back, so that our, our posterity can look back to, to see the, the great things that they, the Lord has done for us and say, okay, I can have hope. I can, I can be assured here that we will be delivered and that the promises of the Lord will be fulfilled because he's fulfilled them in the past. Uh, Alma then turns to talking about the terrible things in the book of Ether uh, and the record of the Jaredite people and says, don't keep some of these things back. Don't share all of them because they're so awful and these people are so terrible and their works that were works of darkness. So, uh, he go. He actually talked quite a bit about that. And one thing I thought about was that in Matthew ten twenty six, it's also in Luke at least. Christ says basically that there is not anything hidden that will will remain hidden. Everything will come to light. But Alma's teaching his son, look, you don't need to like highlight these terrible things. You need you need to tell them that they were wicked. You need to tell them what happened to them that they were that they fell because of their wickedness, but you don't need to highlight what wicked things they were doing. So here's what's interesting to me about this. About 50 years later, in the book of Helaman, we have the Gadiant robbers come forth, and they are doing the same works of darkness that the, the Jaredites were engaged in. No one, no one told them, you know, Helaman didn't divulge that information and his son didn't divulge that information to to these people. Where did they get it? Well, we're specifically and ex- explicitly told in Helaman that it came from Satan because he was the author. He's the author of that darkness. He's the author of it. So what I'm saying is, look, you don't need to give them the, the blueprint to being this evil. Satan can do that, I guess, out of his own free will. But what that will take is Satan working on someone and working on someone. You know, Satan's a counterfeit of Christ. He does a lot of the same types of things in that 
to receive a quote unquote, I guess, for lack of a better word, revelation from Satan and to get that kind of detail about the wickedness and the, the types of oaths and, and covenants that they were making in wickedness, you would need to be practiced. And that takes time in, in the darkness. And Alma was just saying, let's not make it easy, Helaman. Tell them the consequences of sin. You must teach them the consequences of this darkness, but don't give them the roadmap. Uh, I read something, it was pretty comical, saying, you know, when a parent leaves the house and leaves their kids at home, they they just say, hey, be good, okay? You know, choose the right, and we'll be back, and you know what's right and wrong. That's it, right? And if you don't, then there's going to be consequences, maybe. That's the kind of thing a parent says. A parent doesn't say, all right, now when I leave, don't go into the cupboard, climb up on the stool, look behind the third box on the left, pull that box down, see the chocolate chips, pull the chocolate chips down, and eat the chocolate chips. Don't you dare do those things, okay? Because what is a kid going to do? Like, especially a young kid. I mean, a young kid is absolutely going to go do that. They may And they may stop short of eating it, but they're going to go and hop up on the stool, and they're going to pull the third box down. They're going to see if the chocolate chips are there. You have to give them the blueprint to doing what you don't want them to do. And that's what Alma is teaching us on Helaman. Keep these things back. What's in, important about these oaths and covenants and the wickedness that the Jaredites were involved in is uh, later on, Moroni, recording the Jaredite history, tells us, um, Wherefore the Lord commandeth you, when you, he's talking to us, he's now, he's, he's doing the Jaredite record, but now he's turned to us in our day, and he's talking directly to, when you're reading this, Dave, I don't know if there's a Dave listening. He's talking to you, Dave, and to me, Jarrett, and to every, he's talking to us. He says, Wherefore the Lord commandeth you, when ye shall see these things come among you, that ye shall awake to a sense of your awful situation because of this secret combination, which shall be among you, or woe be unto it because of the blood of them who have been slain, for they cry from the dust for vengeance upon it, and also upon all those who built it, built it up. He's saying, I'm talking to you about secret combinations and about the oaths and covenants and the darkness and the wickedness of the Jaredites and of the Gadiantans, right? Whatever it is, Helaman and Alma talking about the the Jaredites, but then we see the Gadiantans raise it up. Moroni sees it in his own people. He sees it in the Jaredite record. He's saying, I'm talking to you about this. This is real. The works of Satan are real. His darkness, the secret combinations is... Uh, you know, conspiracy theory, if that's maybe a modern term, perhaps. These things are are real, okay? And when you see them and you come, you awake to an awful sense of your your state that that, that they've come among us. That's That's the world that we live in. We don't have to know what they are, but we need to know the signs to look for. And again, these great things that are happening in the world and whatever it may be, what can we do? Well, let's go back to Alma and he's gather your family, to make it make your home a finest home. That's what you can do. And if you have some other prompting to do some some other thing, great. But start with your own life, in your own home, with your own family. That's what Alma did when he saw the calamity starting to rise up. Um but it just it just made me think that of we're keeping he kept the details of the wickedness back, but wanted to point out the the consequences of sin. Moroni does the same type of thing. He says, "Look, there's these secret combinations. 
what is it? What's the end of this of the Jaredite story? It's calamity and destruction. It's the consequence. And so, following Satan in, in a large scale and communities, yeah, great. In in, exce- in excessive wickedness, it leads to nationwide calamities. Does the Nephites, the Jaredites, the the Jews, the the, the Hebrews in Israel? It's what it leads to. But it also, on a smaller scale, can destroy your own life and your own home. That's why that's where you, that's that's why that's where we should start. So, after talking to him about this and about the wickedness of the Jaredites, he doesn't he he pivots to teaching Helaman and says he doesn't teach him. All right, teach him all the bad things. No, in fact, he's just said don't teach him any of the, like these these specifics. So, what do you need to teach him? Teach him the consequence. And here you go, chapter verses thirty two and thirty three. Don't trust the secret plans of this people. Teach them everlasting hatred against sin and iniquity. That's it. That's how. That's all I need to teach them. Teach, teach them to hate sin. You have to be explicit and specific about what sin to hate. Just sin is bad. Okay. And then says, preach unto them repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to be to humble themselves, to be meek and lowly in heart. Teach them to withstand every temptation of the devil with their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he teach them? He says, what does he teach Helaman to teach the people? I should say. He, he says, teach them faith, teach them repentance. That's it. Now this is the commandment: Repent ye all, all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me. What Jesus says in Third Nephi twenty-seven. That is the commandment. And that's what Alma tell, tells his son to teach the people. That's what you need to focus on: the pure, simple, basic principles of the gospel. Focus on that, and it inoculates you from uh, the fiery darts of the adversary, from his sin and iniquity. All right, so moving on, chapter 37, kind of wrapping it up here, getting close here. Uh, Nevertheless, because those small miracles were worked by small means, this is verse 41, it did show unto them, he's talking about the Leahona, and his, their fathers, uh, that they were slothful, or sorry, by small means it did show unto them marvelous works. They were slothful and forgot to exercise their faith and diligence, and then those mar- marvelous works ceased, and they did not progress in their journey. Therefore they tarried in the wilderness, or did not travel in a direct course, and were afflicted with hunger and thirst because of their transgressions. Backstory, I should have probably started with this, talking about the Liahona. It was easy for the for them to follow it, it just says where to go, but because it was so easy and so small and simple, they sometimes neglected to keep their faith and to keep the commandments. And so then they would not, as he said, or they tarried in the wilderness or did not travel in a direct course. In our lives, when we neglect the small and simple things, family prayer, personal prayer, personal study, prayer with your spouse, study with your spouse, family home evening. I believe that we create a situation wherein we tarry in the wilderness longer than we need to. We tarry through hard times and trials and struggles and difficulties longer than we need to. We don't go a direct course through them. We take a long way because the Lord wants us to stay in the wilderness until we learn the lesson that we need to learn, until we learn to follow the small and simple things. That's my personal opinion. We we create those situations uh, oftentimes or prolong those situations by our own actions. Final thing I wanted to share uh, is from about the Liahona. Uh, and the small and simple things and what the Liahona can represent in our life. So just a bunch of quotes uh, from general authorities. They are, there are many. So I've got, 
and they they compare them compare their Liahona to a few different things. So first, uh, Elder W. Rolf Kerr of the '70s said, "So we see the brethren and sisters. The words of the Christ, the words of Christ, can be compared to a personal Liahona for each of us, showing us the way. Let us not be slothful because of the easiness of the way. Let us take faith in the words of Christ." So he compares it to the words of Christ. President Thomas S. Monson said, "The same Lord who provided Liahona." For Lehi provides for you and for me today a rare and valuable gift to to give direction to our lives. The gift to which I refer to is known as a patriarchal blessing. So he referred to it, or compared it to a patriarchal blessing. Uh, Spencer W. Kimball said, "Wouldn't you like to have that kind of ball, like a Lehona, that the Lord gave uh, the Lord gave to you every person a conscience, which tells him every time he starts to go down the wrong path. Every child has given it. So he compares it to a conscience or the light of Christ." Elder Bednar uh, compared it to the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost operates in our lives precisely as the Leahona did for Lehi and his family, according to our faith and diligence and heed. And the Holy Ghost provides for us today the same means by, whereby we can receive, by small and simple things, increased understanding about the ways of the Lord. So, uh, actually, I lied. I have one more thing I want to say, and it's I told you about some of the, the like poetic language that I love that Alma uses, and that comes in verses 44 and 45. He says, for behold, it is, it is as easy to give heed to the word of Christ, which will point you a straight, point to you a straight course to eternal bliss, as it was for our fathers to give heed to this compass, which would point to them a straight course to the promised land. And by following its course to the promised land, shall the words of Christ, if we follow their course, carry us beyond this veil of sorrow into a far better land of promise. And I love that, you know, the, the bliss and the land of... Uh, from a, a veil of sorrow into a better land of promise. I love those that language. Alma's Alma's my jam. I love Nephi. Nephi and Alma are probably my favorite writers uh, of the Book of Mormon. Um, obviously, we get a lot of we get a lot of Nephi's firsthand writing, and we also do end up getting uh, Mormon transcribing directly a lot of Alma's writing as well. So, um, verse. Uh, let's go. Let's move on to chapter thirty-eight. Chapter thirty-eight is pretty quick. It's him talking to his son, Shiblon. A few of the things to point out. I wanted to point out verse 3, uh, some of the things, uh, traits, I guess, characteristics of Shiblon. He says, I say unto you, my son, that uh, I have great joy in thee already because of thy faithfulness, thy diligence, thy patience, and thy long suffering. And in verse 2, he says, because of your steadiness. Um, and he reiterates faith and him, his looking to the to God and keeping the commandments. Sam seems to be, or excuse, I said Sam. Woo, that's funny. Shiblon seems to be a lot to, to me, a lot like Sam, Nephi's brother. That he was just steady. Just he was he was diligent. He did the words of his brother. Um, trusted and had faith in the Lord. Trusted and had faith that the Lord had called his brother uh, to lead them. And Shiblon seems to be that way. And it just was a reminder to me that we don't all have to be Nephi. We don't all have to be Alma. We don't all have to be Helaman. There is room. There is plenty of room for Sam and for Shiblon who have faith and keep the commandments and look to the Lord. And they may not be flashy and they may not, you know, they may, it may be people who in a worldly sense, it's really, it, it may be easy to look over them, but to God, they are blessed. And, you know, I say that maybe out of somewhat some selfishness. I don't know. Because I've always seen myself as as a Sam. 
um, because I definitely don't see myself as Alma or as Nephi. And so I've, you know, I've always struggled thinking like, I, I want to be like them, but I just don't feel like that I am. But there's room for Shiblons and there's room for Sam. Um, and they have not only room, but they have a great work to do. And so, yeah, I just love that. that he just, that Alma, his father, points out just how steady he is. And he's just kind of, he gets it and just goes about his business, having faith and repenting and looking to the Lord. Uh, the last, the second thing I want to point out in this chapter is that he, this is basically, if you, if you read chapter 36 and 37 and then go right into 38, what you'll notice is that chapter 38 is like a super condensed version of chapter 36 and 37. So it may be that there was more written to Shiblon and Mormon just didn't include it all. It may just be that maybe Shiblon was around while he was talking to Helaman. And so it was like, he kind of got a lot of the other things. Uh, maybe just be like, you know, oh, dad, why are you telling the story for the hundredth time? I know you saw the angel. I get it. And dad's losing it. He keeps telling the same stories over and over. I don't know, but it just is, it's interesting that it, you'll notice that there's a lot of similarities. It's obviously much shorter, but, uh, a thorough study of chapter 36 and 37 and then into 38, you'll notice that it's, it's essentially, uh, a condensed version. He then teaches him about just, Hey, I know you're steady. But don't don't get prideful because of that. Watch your pride. Be humble. It says that in verse eleven, um, and and stay the way that you are. Stay stay humble. And then he says, uh, I love verse twelve. It's, he said, use boldness, but not overbearance. And also see that you bridle all your passions, that you may be filled with love. See that you refrain from idleness. Idleness. Now, passion. I mean, this could be any type of passion. Really, the way I think about it is just emotions in general. I, f- I tend to get really passionate about the gospel. I tend to get really, I mean, passionate about f- some topics. There's also obviously moving into the next chapter, sexual sin and passion in that re- reference. But uh, as Alma talks to his son, Coranton, about sexual sin, whatever the word passion means in this case, I think that the, the message can still be learned. And that is, he didn't say stop that passion. He said bridle it, which is to control it. And use it in a controlled manner. You don't stop a horse's power. Instead, you put a bridle and with a bit and a harness, a bit in the mouth and a harness around its face. And with that bridle, you now control the power of the horse. You don't stop it, but you use it properly and appropriately. Um, and so bridling your passion about the gospel or about politics even, or about world events or whatever it is, control it, harness it in a proper and good fashion and use it for good. Um, use it to point souls to Christ rather than to drive them away. Bridle your passion so that you don't, it doesn't overcome you and that you, uh, your opinion becomes and your passion becomes more important than a person to be loved. Uh, I love that. It goes back to the small and simple things. So just as a, as a close to that thought, let's, I'll flip to James chapter three. Behold, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may be, obey us, and we turn about their whole body. So it's a small and simple thing, right? And so just keeping in line with Alma's teaching of small and simple things, he's talking about this bridle and bridling your passions. It's a small thing. You have to stop the passion, but control it. Uh, and that is, that's all I want to share this week, actually. And uh, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. There's, I mean, chapter 37 especially, a lot 
chapter 36, when you look break down the chiasmus, there is a lot. Uh, I only really scratched the surface. I hope that you this in, uh, gets you kind of excited about this week's study and jumping into the scriptures. Uh, I think my takeaway from this week, if I just were to pick something to close with, it would be the small and simple things that we can do in our own lives, in our own homes, to make our homes be the finest homes, even in the midst and especially in the midst of the latter days and in the last days uh, leading up to the Savior's return, that we can stay on the covenant path uh, by small and simple things and by that receive spiritual protection. And I thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks to my wife. Shout out to my wife. Let me do this. Uh, as always, you can always email me, jaildenwebster at gmail.com. Um, I've got a, hopefully some interviews coming up here. I've mentioned in the past it's my favorite thing to do, or one, at least one of them. Uh, it's just kind of been hard to find uh, find people and scheduling and things. Uh, so like I said, hopefully I have some. If you'd like to be interviewed, if you know someone who would be a great interview, reach out to me, jaildenwebster at gmail.com. Come follow me, A Disciple's Journey, on Facebook. Shout out to all of you for listening. Really appreciate it. You really motivate me to spend the time. Uh, like I said, I I feel driven to do this, but it makes it a lot. You guys make it a lot easier knowing that there's at least someone on the other end of this. So thank you and enjoy your study this week. Uh, we'll talk very soon.